Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, and today I am here with the editors of the book Crisis Lawyering, Effective Legal Advocacy in Emergency Situations, and I'd like to introduce you to them. I'm here with Ray Brescia and Eric K. Stern. Gentlemen, thanks so much for joining us. Hello, Lee. Thanks for having us. Happy to be here. So let's start with Ray. Ray, could you tell us a little bit about who you are and how you came to work with Eric on this book? Sure. Uh, I teach now at Albany Law School. I've taught there for about 13 years. And uh, before that, I practiced for about a decade and a half, mostly in New York City uh, and sometimes dealing with crisis situations. But the partnership around this book really was a uh, product of the affiliation that Albany Law School has with the University at Albany, which is part of the SUNY system. And we do, we collaborate a lot. Uh, this was uh, a product of that opportunity that we have to, to work with uh, people from fields other than law. And Eric, can you please tell us a little bit about how you came to write this book and what your background is? My background uh, is actually in, in political science, and I have been taking a really a broader multidisciplinary or problem-based look at crisis management and crisis leadership for about 30 years, actually, at this point, partly partnering with government and other organizations to help them to prepare and learn from their experiences and doing a lot of academic writing and teaching and program development in this area. Before I came to UAlbany, I was recruited by the then chief counsel of FEMA, who's actually also one of the contributors to the volume, to help him try to better prepare FEMA lawyers for the challenges of crisis management and did some uh, some research talking to FEMA leaders and about what they need from their lawyers, talking to FEMA lawyers and particularly those who are recognized as, as star performers in these difficult situations, and then trying to uh, uh, develop good practice models and training to enable female lawyers to do better. After that, uh, I came to UAlbany about five years ago as part of the founding faculty at the College of Emergency Preparedness, Homeland Security, and Cybersecurity, where I am full professor and uh, currently serving as elected chairman of the faculty as well. So as my listeners may have picked up already, this is a book coming out in 2021, but this is not just, hey, COVID happened to all of us. Let's talk about how we deal with this crisis. This is an area that you both have been um, interested in and concentrating on for a long time. Uh, can you talk about the impact that COVID had on this book? I imagine you were pretty close to finished with it when uh, the pandemic first happened. Um, I'll kick this over to you, Ray. So yes, you're, you're absolutely right that we were pretty much finished. We had all the, the chapters written from, you know, submitted by our contributors. And uh, the COVID hit when we were, I think we were just about finished with putting the last, uh, you know, draft to bed. And we scrambled a little bit towards the end to to put in references to COVID, uh, but we believe that the COVID pandemic is a, really a test of some of the theories in the book, and uh, you know many of the authors 
you know, we're, we're writing about tactics and strategies that lawyers are now using in response to COVID. So I think that the, the idea of crisis lawyering is timeless and is transubstantive in, the, in that it, you know, no matter the crisis, there are aspects of crisis lawyering that we see as, as crossing across different sectors. I mean, we've got uh, an author, for example, who wrote about uh, lawyering in the 1980s in New York City, fighting homelessness and, uh, you know, straight up to lawyers who worked with their students, to, to professors at Yale Law School who worked with their students to address the the travel ban, uh, the Muslim travel ban. So, uh, you know, the the experiences of many of the contributors and, and most of the contributors wrote first person accounts of their experiences lawyering through crisis situations. You know, many of those experiences are, you know, fixed in time, but the lessons are uh, timeless, we think. And, uh, you know, we've we've got uh, people talking about, you know, preparing for crisis situations and trying to address climate change and looking at uh, human rights abuses and looking at police community relations. I mean, these are problems before COVID and they will continue to be problems moving forward. So so COVID is just an example of lawyers, you know, it, it uh, oppor- gave opportunities for, for lawyers to deal with crisis situations really across the globe. But the lessons that people take from the experiences that the, the contributors had uh, and wrote about in the book are applicable certainly to COVID response, but really any crisis response. From my perspective, the, uh, what we're trying to do here is to to really lay out a, a kind of a, an, an all hazards and practice areas way of thinking about crisis that really emphasizes the nature of the problems and the working conditions that take lawyers out of their comfort zones and force them to work under extraordinarily difficult conditions where uh, there there is uh, a lot at stake, there's time pressure, there's uncertainty, perhaps moving from settled areas of the law to unsettled areas of the law, perhaps being directly affected individually or organizationally by the disruptive events. I think COVID is a great example of, of that, but one that the infrastructure of the book was well ad- adapted to analyzing. So it, it may well be that that one of the follow-up projects that we we decide to do would be to uh, you know to focus in and do do different case studies of lawyers responding to COVID. I should also mention, and, and this is implicit in what Ray was saying as well. One of the things that's a, a bit unique about the book is that we're actually looking at crisis lawyering on both sides of the barricade, so to speak. As I mentioned before, my original interest in some follow-up work uh, that I've done here in the United States and, and also internationally has focused a lot on uh, government lawyers meeting the challenge of crisis management. But many of the cases that we look at in the book, we have lawyers challenging the government, and we've had a lot of situations in recent years where the government needs to be challenged. And so we capture that as well. I really liked what you had to say about this being about lawyers being challenged outside their comfort zone. Because I think that if you talk to any lawyer and you say, oh, crisis lawyering, many people may come back to you and say, well, my client feels like 
whatever their matter is, is a crisis. So if I come to you and say, what is a crisis? And my client says, well, what isn't a crisis? It's all a crisis. What is crisis lawyering in that case? And what I really appreciated about the book is because these are chapter by chapter, mostly first person accounts, where they discuss one, two, three episodes that they faced in their working life and what they found worked or didn't work. There's a really fascinating chapter by a gentleman who spent a good deal of time as the lawyer for a teen shelter in New York State, which apparently has a has or had, I, I don't know, a rule that a teenager could seek shelter for up to 30 days before a judgment being rendered, essentially, that would force them back to their home or into a foster care situation. And so he would be encountering, you know, distraught or just very upset parents saying, give me back my child. And, you know, imagine that situation where you're having to, you know, discuss with these distraught people, that's not possible right now, here's what's possible. And he walks through techniques he used to get through to people. And I just, every chapter I felt had a nugget of wisdom or more than one that you could take away. So even though, you know, one crisis, for example, was, you know, talking about when the Muslim ban was first instituted and that as a (laughs) non-lawyer really made me well up with pride to be working for an association that serves lawyers when I saw the response, which was that, you know, lawyers across the country heard that this was happening. And even this, if this was not their area of law, many people put on a suit and went to the airport. And that was identifiable as a crisis. But then there are things that aren't necessarily as identifiable as a crisis. And they, they talk about both, the acute versus chronic. So I would love to talk about acute crisis versus chronic, because I think that that helps Define a little more what we're talking about when we talk about crisis lawyering. Uh, I can give you a few thoughts about that. I think you put your finger on something very important, and this is also a point that Ray often makes, that lawyers are used to helping people with their crises, but that doesn't necessarily create a crisis for the law firm, particularly if it's a recurring problem where where a lot of, of legwork is done in advance and can be adapted from, you know, pre-existing documents and and with a predictable schedule. What is very challenging about crisis situations is that they often occur unexpectedly. They disrupt the plan scheduling. Things happen very quickly, which makes it hard to do legal research. Some of that work is done in suits. Some of the lawyers that that we have, have studied and worked with and gathered experience from have done their work in rubber boots and, and, you know, flooded disaster areas working with survivors. And so, I mean, that's a very, very uh, physical example of, of lawyers leaving the usual environment and, and getting out to, um, to other places and, and meeting people and dealing with, with challenges that may not be a part of their everyday r- repertoire and that they may not necessarily have been prepared for by law school or by you know the usual professional development trajectories in a in a, in a law firm say that forces them to use other muscles other kinds of soft skills and it can be can be very challenging 
I also would like you to talk about the the chapter by, I believe, Scott Westfall, talking about the characteristics that many lawyers have that can be helpful or harmful. And even going back to law school, the kinds of things that you're taught in law school that can end up either hurting or helping you. I just, I found that fascinating. So if you as a law professor could talk a little bit about your view of that. So a couple of things. First is the notion uh, that, that we started off with earlier, which was, you know, not every crisis for a client is necessarily a crisis for the lawyer. So one uh, area in which I practiced when I practiced uh, was to represent tenants facing eviction. Every one of those cases where I handle, and I probably handled thousands, every one of those cases was a crisis for my client. It was rarely a crisis for me, however, because I knew what to do, what arguments to make, what documents to file, when to file them. I could file them fairly quickly. I could get uh, an order from the court to stay the eviction if there were grounds to do so. And there often was were some grounds, uh, you know, to to stay those evictions. But then I also had more complicated cases that that were novel, where I could not rely on uh, pre-prepared papers and pre-packaged arguments. Uh, For example, representing squatters who had taken over buildings with the hope that perhaps the, the city of New York who owned those buildings might be willing to negotiate with them and uh, allow them to purchase the building and, and rehab the building themselves. Very different legal strategies, very different legal challenges. And and often uh, the threat, the real threat of an eviction coming without uh, a court order. So those settings for me were very challenging. So that's sort of how we try and distinguish that there are situations for the lawyer that are different from the, the, you know, the typical client crisis that the client faces. And so they exhibit examples of novel challenges and uh, the facts are uncertain. The path forward is unclear. There are serious threats to safety and values and the lawyer must move very quickly. Uh, So these are the characteristics of lawyer crises. Now, for people who may, you know, who may be listening to this, who may be thinking about the book, who may say, well, I'm not really a crisis lawyer. I'm I'm never going to face uh, a crisis in my practice. Well, COVID is an example of crisis lawyering. Every every lawyer in the country, let alone the world, has had to adapt to the crisis setting of COVID and had to deal with working remotely and trying to file uh, claims when the courthouses were closed. So it's these sort of unsettling situations and, and quite literally unprecedented situations that can knock lawyers for a loop. And, you know, we are a profession that literally deals with precedent. That's how we function. And to deal with uh, unprecedented situations can get as you as you said earlier, Lee, can get lawyers out of their comfort zone. So 
to get to your, to your to your more immediate question about teaching crisis lawyering, it it is certainly challenging, but it is you know you you try to prepare students by developing methods and uh, working with in interdisciplinary teams and trying to maintain sort of personal and professional balance and a clear-eyed, as best you can, grasp of the law and the facts of the problem. And you, and you, you know, use case studies to see how other lawyers dealt with those crises. And that's really what the book is all about. It's, it's those sorts of uh, case studies that give people a sense of what it's like to deal with a crisis situation. And, and the bottom line is, and this is another thing we don't always associate with, with lawyering, there's a fair amount of creativity that goes into crisis lawyering. And so, you know, preparing students by saying, get as good a grip on the situation as you can, understand that you're not necessarily going to be in a, in, in a setting where the path is clear, and also, you know, feel free to, to get creative. And that's, you know, that's what you can do, I think, to prepare for uh, crisis lawyering, um, prepare students for that. Well, I really found the chapters that talked mostly about, say, you're you're a lawyer, but you're also having to work with a multidisciplinary team. Now, that might be because you are part of a large corporation and you're having to answer a threat to that corporation or um, to one of your employees. For example, there's um, the, the New York Times. I think he's the GC at the New York Times. Uh, he wrote a chapter and he's talking about you know, how he dealt with a series of kidnappings of New York Times employees abroad. And, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, I've never gone to law school, but I don't think there's a day where you talk about how to handle it when your clients are kidnapped. And, you know, being faced with these situations where you just can't just be, well, I'm the lawyer and I'm in charge and we're doing this. You're needing to work with, whether it's inside a corporation, whether it's inside, say, a university or a state government, you know, you may not be the main decision maker. You may be having to counsel others who, you know, as a group, you're going to have to come up with a solution, but you may just be one voice in the room and how can you make your voice effective and how can you be effective in that kind of situation? Eric, can you talk about times in which you've seen this be very successful or if you can't, you know, talk about one situation in particular, what are the characteristics of a successful interaction by a lawyer with a large interdisciplinary team as you're trying to come to a decision? What helps and what hurts? So I think I could approach that from a couple of different directions. It is very interesting that if you look at, the, at lawyers in emergency management, which is one of, one of the, uh, the areas that I personally have worked with quite a lot, one of the things that we saw at FEMA before we did the, the FEMA Legal Advice in Crisis Project was that lawyer influence was on a kind of a pendulum. And there, there were situations where lawyers had too much influence. They could say something was too risky and really essentially had a veto and shut things down in an environment where a degree of risk taking and even perhaps more properly risk management was what was important, not risk avoidance, to other situations where 
people preferred to move forward aggressively and leave the lawyer behind. The lawyers were were excluded or marginalized because they were perceived to be putting the, the brakes on mission fulfillment. They were too slow. They couldn't keep up. They were naysayers. And so, for instance, many FEMA federal coordinating officers indicated that they, they would rather do what needed to be done to help people and then uh, have the lawyers clean up the mess later, essentially, or, or be forgiven rather than, rather than proactively avoiding missteps. So there is a certain balance to be struck in the legal role. And I think starting with problem solving, and I know that, that legal problem solving is an important trend in legal, legal education and legal practice as well. And this is something that is very consistent with and compatible with crisis lawyering, of course. But if, if you take that problem solving perspective, an organization or a client is facing a challenge and addressing the, the issue may require multiple types of expertise. So there may be a legal dimension, there may be a public relations dimension, there may be a public health dimension that requires you know, physicians or epidemiologists to, to weigh in. And all of those pieces have to be there to solve the problem in a balanced way that, it, that addresses the values that are at stake, that are threatened uh, in the situation. And so it's not about the lawyers you know, being in a dominant role or being sidelined. It's that the lawyers should be weighing in appropriately to support the, the decision-making. Another thing that makes it complicated is that in different settings, clients or leaders will expect different things from their lawyers. Some want their lawyers to weigh in on the technical, narrow, legal issue, uh, you know, their technocratic expertise. Others want a wise counselor who, who is good at issue spotting and, and who can provide broad advice that's not just strictly legal. And so for a lawyer to be effective, it's a lot of it is about reading the room and reading the, the, the leader and also knowing how and when to, to weigh in, what issues should be brought up in a, in a big group, all hands setting, what issues should be in a smaller group, when to try to secure a, you know, a private meeting with, with the decision maker one-on-one. And so that there's a, a whole social psychological piece that is very important. In Scott's chapter that you referred to, uh, Scott Westfall, he talks about lawyers often not having the opportunities to develop good group work skills. One of his favorite examples, is he says that if you give uh, business school students an, an assignment, they will brainstorm together, work together, pass the work around, try to create synergies between the in individual team members that are more than the sum of the parts. He says, typically law students will meet very briefly, try to divide the, the work up into separate segments. Everybody goes off and does their piece, puts it together, does a quick edit and hands it in. You're not getting those group dynamic synergies. So Scott would argue that teaching lawyers to work creatively in group settings using ideas from design thinking will help them to be better lawyers in general, and that, that those creative problem-solving skills and effective team skills are even more essential in crisis situations. And one of the things I definitely want to get to is this idea you guys put forward of this being an emerging field of practice. So as we've already alluded to, Every single lawyer can run into a crisis situation that's not just a you know, crisis for their client, it's also a crisis for them. But 
there also is perhaps a space for people who this is their specialty. My aunt, for example, is an Episcopalian minister, and she has spent her entire career essentially when there's a, a scandal or a tragedy within a, a parish community that the priest needs to be removed. She is parachuted in. She makes sure that everything is in order. Everything is, you know, healed and relationships are restored and trust is rebuilt. And then she's on to the next town, the next congregation. Is there a space like that for lawyers who that really is their their interest? They'd like to do that kind of emergency crisis management for a set amount of time, and then they're on to the next crisis or emergency. I think that there is absolutely not just space for that, but demand for that. And if you you think about a a civil rights incident involving a a data breach or a uh, release of a toxic chemical, uh, that there are certainly lawyers that specialize in each of those areas of law. So I think that we want to get across to the, the legal community and those who work with lawyers that there may be instances in your lives when you may face a crisis. So that's sort of one way to prepare is to think about the ways that in your practice, in your business, in your, you know, whatever it is you're doing, what are the potential crises that may arise and what type of legal guidance might you want and need in those types of crises? On the other side, there certainly are, you know, so that's the, you know, prep for when crises come to to you. Another approach is certainly to go run towards the crises and to work in areas where crises are common and to develop an expertise as to how to deal with those, you know, crises in uh, the area in which you are an expert. So I think that there, 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 are, there is something for everyone in this book. Uh, we've got a uh, chapter, for example, from Bahar Azmi, who uh, works at the Center for Constitutional Rights. He also teaches at Seton Hall Law School. And, you know, he, he dealt with uh, detainees on Guantanamo. That was a, a, a particularly you know, difficult crisis to address, particularly early on when it seemed that the, you know, law, no law applied there. But the Center for Constitutional Rights goes into crisis situations all the time. And uh, you know, uh, thinking about, you mentioned earlier, David McCraw of the New York Times. He is representing a client that has day in, day out needs but also has crisis situations like when a, a journalist is captured. So we really think that the lessons uh, from the book can apply to lawyers in both of those situations, whether it's preparing for when crises come to them or if you want to you know, go into situations where there are a crisis uh, where, where crisis lawyering is required, there's something there for you as well. So, so I do I do think that they're two sides of the same coin, and we can learn a lot from the experiences of those who've been in crisis situations, whether they were what they looked for in their work or whether that those crises came to them. I really got a kick out of the title of the chapter by the election lawyer who 
said the crisis comes once a year. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> and that's, They've got yeah. a date for when the crisis occurs and it's every single election. Yeah. And this year, uh, or at least, you know, in 2020, the the, the election lawyering crisis extended uh, many months. One specialty that we uh, we haven't spoken about a lot thus far in the legal profession that, that is represented in the book as well is so-called operational lawyering, which is something that's typical of military organizations and some police organizations. So we have a, a chapter, for instance, by Brian Wilson, who works for the Department of Homeland Security. He wrote that with a, a Canadian colleague, uh, Nora Johnson. But they were looking at the issue of multi-agency coordination in crises. The unit that, that Brian works for at DHS focuses on maritime operational threat response. And so if you have a modern piracy case, like in the uh, movie Captain Phillips, that, that may be an issue that requires uh, the Department of State, the Department of Defense, the intelligence community, Department of Transportation, and, and, and depending on the issue, other relevant agencies to work together effectively. And uh, Brian is is very good at crisis lawyering because he comes out of that operational law tradition where lawyers, uh, you know, accompany battlefield commanders and try to keep up with them and making assessments about about whether particular courses of action are acceptable from uh, you know both domestic and international legal perspectives, uh, international law perspectives, and so that that is an area where I think we can can learn. Other lawyers can learn a lot from operational lawyers about doing it quickly. And that speaks to an issue I think we haven't addressed, but is very important. And that's what I would call the issue of crisis standards of care. And here it's interesting to compare with other professions too. We know that doctors have developed some thinking about what good doctoring looks like in a wilderness situation or a mass casualty event, no notice as opposed to a, you know, a scheduled surgical procedure in a fully functional hospital. In these extraordinary situations, these emergency situations, these resource-deprived situations that come up in wilderness medicine, doctors are expected to do the best they can with what they have, and sometimes they have to make hard priorities when there aren't resources available to help everybody, and so they have to do triage. And there, there's some well-developed ethical thinking about how that's supposed to work. Our sense after doing the work in this volume and, and previous work is that that isn't quite as developed in the, in the legal pr profession, but in, in crisis lawyering, lawyers often have to work in a more improvised way and under time pressure. And that's something that, that can be very uncomfortable for them. I don't know, Ray, you, you've, uh, you've really followed up on that, that issue and done some writing on it since the book as well. Maybe you want to say something about that. It's interesting in you know the rules that govern the legal profession. There is a you know, sort of a, a general sense that you know lawyers must be competent. Uh, that that is the standard of care. Sometimes we say the the level of competence is that of a general practitioner. So not that there's really any, there are really many general practitioners in the practice of law uh, anymore. Most people specialize. But the, the rules also say that, you know, in a situation where more is at stake, 
where uh, you know there are greater risks involved, a, a higher level of competence is expected. But at the same time, we also say in an emergency situation, you are given greater leeway. So there's a bit of a tension in in the rules that govern the profession, which are supposed to be, you know, there's, they're, they're not supposed to, you know, imagine every possible scenario that a lawyer may find him or herself in, but they are supposed to be rules of general application. And uh, I think if you, if you peek a little bit under the hood, I'm not sure that we've really thought through well enough what the standard of care is in an emergency situation where the you know the stakes are very high and a level of expertise is expected but at the same time it's it is also an emergency where the rules are somewhat relaxed so uh, i think we have to think uh, harder and and uh you know eric's uh uh, reference to other fields, other disciplines, is important for us as a profession to think about developing, uh, if you would, uh, a code of ethics for lawyering in crisis situations. And I think that it's um, it is is worth some examining whether whether we we like those other disciplines should be thinking about in greater depth what it means to to lawyer in crisis situations on the on the legal ethics side. Well, and that is fascinating. Uh, I think back to a million years ago when I was in college and training to be an emergency medical technician, and we had, we used to call them practicals, and essentially you would run through them as though they were true crises, true emergencies happening in front of you. And the day that we had the mass casualty incident training, you had guidelines set out that told you how to triage patients. And, you know, someone may come before you and under normal circumstances, you would do X, Y, Z. You would be expected to provide, you know, a certain number of elements of care. But in a mass casualty incident, you would triage them in a way that said, I cannot help you. I need to move on to the next person in this situation. And it's true. I, I haven't thought deeply about the need for that in the legal community, but I think that's a fascinating conversation for you guys to, to have. The other part of the book that I think is going to impact a lot of people is not just the emergency response, so when we're talking about the acute emergency, but moving more towards the chronic emergency or the chronic impacts. And I'd love to talk about emergency response versus long-term recovery. There's a chapter in the book that talks about key considerations for lawyers shepherding communities through long-term recovery from major disasters. You know, the pandemic happened to all of us. It did not happen to all of us equally. And there are certainly communities who are going to be suffering from the impacts of, of COVID for much longer than others. But how can lawyers help their communities in this recovery process? What is important for all attorneys to be considering as hopefully we come out of these crisis situations and acknowledge that it won't just all be over you know, next month. These are going to be impacts that continue to reverberate through decades, I imagine. 
I think you're absolutely right. And, and you know, I like to think about what uh, uh, Louis Brandeis said uh, over a, a century ago. He, he described the role that he played as the lawyer for the situation, which, you know, which still sort of rankles some where, the, where he was saying, you know, you have to think of the good of the community as a lawyer. And we often get away from that. We often see ourselves as lawyers as hired guns and that we, as, as we are required to do, as we're expected to do as lawyers, to be zealous advocates for our clients. But sometimes that really gets into short-term thinking. And, you know, I think that we, you know, as we, as hopefully we emerge from the, you know, COVID and we address in a meaningful ways racial justice and other injustices, that we sort of think about that Brandeisian view, which is, you know, thinking about being a lawyer for the situation. What really, what is in the long term best interests, not just of our, of the clients we serve directly, but also of the community in which they find themselves. And, you know, if I'm representing a landlord, you know, commercial uh, a landlord, you know, is it really in the best interest of that landlord in the long run to pursue eviction of a business that may be struggling? And, uh, you know, maybe, and if you, and if you do evict that, that business is, is the, the, the space going to be vacant for months or years? Uh, what's going to happen to the employees? So, you know, you can have a frank conversation with clients about, you know, what's really in their long-term interest, um, and, and to, to sort of put those long-term interests perhaps, ahead of you know what might seem to be temporary or short-term gain. So I think that we that's what's the lessons from a number of the different chapters, the chapter on policing, the chapter on uh, recovering for, from Katrina, from preparing for climate change. you know it's it's really thinking about you know working with with others, uh, with stakeholders across a, a community, to think about what's really in the best interests of the community. And, th- and that's, you know, there may be people who push back and probably a lot of lawyers, their first instinct is, well, I have to be a zealous advocate for my client. You can still be a zealous advocate for your client, but work with them to think about their, you know, what's what's really in their best interest long-term. What, what uh, Alexis de Tocqueville said, you know, self-interest rightly understood. You know, you know, I think that 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 kind of thinking is really valuable in a crisis. Eric, I don't know if you I assume you want to follow up there. Sure. Uh, so there are a couple of pieces there that, that are very interesting and, 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 and resonated with me that go off in a, in a couple of slightly different directions. One of them, I think, is, is related to climate change that Ray, Ray just mentioned as well. I'm currently in, involved in a, a parallel project with the Red Cross looking at the 2020 disaster season. And one of the things that we found in our conversations with the Red Cross is that whereas they used to see the, the work of the disaster response division as being dealing with a series of acute events with, with breathers in between, we're now seeing climate-related extreme 
or climate change related extreme weather coming in a way that there, there's just no downtime. The disasters are starting to overlap and they're doing crisis operations in a more or less sustained way, not only throughout uh, hurricane season, but uh, over l- larger and larger portions of the, of the year. Last year, which is the year that we're focusing on, they, they had to do it in a, in, a, in a COVID-19 environment that really challenged the Red Cross, like everybody else, to, to rethink how they were doing things, to take a lot of things online. And so, uh, so that's from acute to chronic plays out that way as well, where we seem to be living in, in very crisis-prone times, and there are all kinds of complicated interactive effects among these, these crises. And of course, last year, the Red Cross operations were taking place in a an atmosphere of social and political unrest that impacted the the some of the the mass care decisions that, that they had to make as make as well. You referenced in your intro the phrase I believe it was Thomas Friedman came up with it the age of accelerations and and certainly it has felt like that living through these past few years. Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. Secondly, and, and talking about time and acceleration, I think you, you raised a very important question looking beyond the, the, the acute event to look at the whole, if you're talking about emergency management, the disaster cycle, there is a very important piece that comes both before and after. So after the one event and before the, the next one, where there's a need to try organizationally to learn about what happened but also to not only manage the recovery, but try to build back better and to look at, at uh, look for opportunities to mitigate risks that are likely to be exacerbated as the climate changes and as we see more extreme weather. I think there are parallels in other domains, but but it's particularly clear there. I think the the working conditions for lawyers are somewhat different as they uh, as lawyers get involved in advocating for different parts of the community in the aftermath of a crisis or or to make sure that that uh, the recovery happens in an uh, an equitable and sustainable way and and one that hopefully will put the community on a on a better footing uh, for the future sometimes there are, are crises after the crisis that emerge as as Maybe there are conflicts over different development visions for a, a community after an event like like Katrina, or where there may be proposals to retreat from a floodplain where people have been living for many years and have have ties to the you know to the land and where very severe value conflicts can can emerge. And there may be challenging crisis lawyering in those situations as well. But clearly, you know, a holistic perspective on this that looks both at the short-term acute emergency and the longer-term strategic aftermath, that is the right way to look at it. Well, and I think one of the points that's made um, a number of times throughout the book, at least as a reader, this is one of my takeaways, is that you as an attorney can have an impact into your client's resilience in the wake of whatever disaster and crisis you have been confronted with you can make a difference between how well this client, this business, this community can rebound from whatever they've faced. And so I hope that that is a takeaway that my listeners, whether they're attorneys or not, think about that they can have this kind of a a positive impact. If someone has read the book or wants to read the book, wants to reach out to you guys, one of the things I really appreciated was 
the contact information for nearly every contributor to the book is in the book. You you included their uh, email addresses in case someone wanted to reach out directly to them. I love that as a touch. But if someone wanted to pick up crisis lawyering, effective legal advocacy in emergency situations, where could they go to do that? Or how could they reach out to you guys? Well, they wherever books are sold, uh, uh, <laughs> it, is, it is available. Uh, Amazon, uh, you know, you could certainly go to the NYU Press webpage and and search crisis lawyering. But it, it's it pretty easy to to pick up the book. It's available in multiple formats, uh, you know, hardcover, ebook. But then contact information. We're uh, both. Uh, uh, Eric and I are available on our school's websites and our, our contact information is there if anyone wants to wants to reach out. And you can also reach out to us at the podcast at books at abajournal.com. Thank you to Ray and Eric for joining us for this episode and to you for joining us and listening to the Modern Law Library. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast listening service.